0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by 303 Protectants and Cleaners, designed to take care of the boats, trucks, RVs, and SUVs that you use for your adventures. Because if you like to play outside, your vehicle is gonna take a beating. Oh no, look, AJ! Oh no, Dad! Dad. We We spelled spelled squid. squid! Okay, so that was clearly forced. I convinced my kids to help me produce this ad, but the truth is that about 10 minutes before I recorded that, they did, in fact, spill the chopped up squid we've been using for crab bait all over our boat. And I totally did not freak out, because our vinyl cushions, along with the fiberglass, gel coat, and just about every other surface on the boat have been treated with 303 Aerospace Protectant. 303 was developed over 40 years ago to protect the wing boots on airplanes. But then the founder realized it had all kinds of uses. Today, it's recommended by 25 OEM manufacturers to preserve everything from cars to dirt bikes to ATVs. 303 blocks UV rays to prevent fading, cracking, and premature aging, while also repelling stains, smudges, and dust. It's water-based, so it's safe to use on your exterior trim pieces and even your car's leather seats, which definitely need to be defended. Can I see the the mud situation? How bad is it? I don't want feel it. What is all this other stuff? Half a burrito, socks, underwear. Keep your favorite things looking beautiful year after year with the most powerful protectant available. Outside podcast listeners get 20% off all 303 products for a limited time. Go to 303products.com and use the promo code OUTSIDE2021. That's 303products.com and promo code OUTSIDE2021. Dad, you
1: just
0: went through a stop sign! From Outside magazine. this is the Outside Podcast. One of the hardest parts of producing the kinds of stories we often tell at Outside magazine and on this show is interviewing people about the challenging experiences that change their lives. Getting someone to speak openly and honestly about their most difficult moments, that takes bravery and also empathy. If you've listened to the survival tales we've told over the years, you've heard what it can be like for people to recall what it took to get through hell. To learn how to guide that type of conversation, we spend lots of time listening to folks who are really, really good at it. And there's no one better than Anna Sale, host of the Death, Sex, and Money podcast from WNYC, a show that, as the tagline puts it, is about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. Anna's courage and her ability to connect with people on the most personal of topics sets her apart from just about everyone else in this business. For a recent episode of Death, Sex, and Money, Anna spoke with a professional rock climber who has been forced to endure a different kind of survival epic than you usually hear about in adventure narratives. It's a powerful story, and I'm thrilled to share it with you today. A quick note before we get started. This episode contains some discussion of suicidal thoughts. If you want to skip that part, it happens about 39 minutes in. I'll let Anna take it from here.
2: Mason Earl spends most of his day in bed. That's where he was when I reached him over FaceTime. Hey, Mason, how you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. How are you? Good. You're, you might notice... Mason is 32, and he has a chronic illness called myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ME-CFS, commonly called chronic fatigue syndrome. ME-CFS is a complex illness with a wide variety of symptoms, including muscle and joint pain, memory issues, trouble sleeping, and extreme fatigue. There's no known cure. I'm just going to let you sort of guide me on, you know, how you're observing your energy level and when you want to wrap up, and then we can pick up again tomorrow.
1: Yeah, I've usually got a, a pretty solid 30 to 40 minute window where I can, you know, be myself and use my voice and all that good stuff.
2: Before Mason got sick, he was a professional rock climber. He climbed all over the world, was featured in major climbing magazines, and was paid by corporate sponsors, including Eddie Bauer. But today, Mason spends most of his time at home. He lives in Reno, Nevada, with his wife, Allie. He can't climb anymore. He can't do much of anything. And while there's still a lot that medical professionals are learning about MECFS, people have noticed its similarities to long-haul COVID, which also includes chronic symptoms like fatigue and brain fog. Mason has been dealing with these symptoms for the past three years. Um, And are you in a comfortable position now? Are you ready to go?
1: I sure am. Yeah, I'm laying down on my side with the phone resting on my ear with an eye mask on.
2: (laughs) It's kind of funny because like when, when we start talking, you bring the phone and I can see like, I'm going into your ear. It's as if we're entering your internal monologue a little bit. Perfect. (laughs) Which is like, feels spot on. It feels just right. Um, About how much time do you spend in that position a day?
1: Um, It varies. Uh, Yeah. At sort of the, you know, the, peak severity of my, uh, illness, um, you know, probably 20, 22 hours, um, thereabouts.
2: 22 hours of a 24 hour day.
1: Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, but right now, um, probably close to, I'm spending, uh, maybe 16 hours a day in bed, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, it's, a uh, feels like freedom comparatively
2: mm.
1: but still not a i wouldn't call it acceptable <laughs> not an acceptable amount of time out of bed so i just um with me cfs such a big part of it is um this sort of sensory overload um you know being really hypersensitive to noise and light
2: mm. And I imagine it's, can be hard to put words to it, but, but if you were to describe like what it feels like to have light come in, in a way that feels uncomfortable, like what is the, what's the feeling, the physical feeling that that doesn't feel pleasant?
1: I mean, if you've, you know, ever had a, a bad concussion or a hangover, um, that's sort of similar The sort of the concussion post concussion phase is probably the closest where just, you know, um, your brain just can't handle it. It's, um, it, you know, it's can be quite excruciating. Um, the same with you know, uh, noise like right now. Um, you know, I'll be, I'll be sitting in my living room and I'll see my wife outside and I'll know that she's about to open the door but it still can't prepare me the second that door opens and there's a bit of a screech and that noise you know it's like this little moment that my body goes into shock it's, you know it's just like the nervous system being totally overwhelmed um, or something yeah you know, we no one's quite sure
2: <laughs> yeah it just feels like too much it's like it's just, just-
1: yeah it's too much
2: Mason spent most of his time outdoors before he was diagnosed with ME-CFS. He first started rock climbing as a kid growing up in Massachusetts, but he didn't get serious about it until he moved out to Colorado for college. Eventually, Mason dropped out of school to focus on climbing. He worked at Yosemite and took on odd jobs so he could climb as much as possible, and his dedication paid off. At 23, Mason was signed by Eddie Bauer. He laughingly called it a gravy train that paid for his climbing trips all around the world. From
1: about the time I was 18 to um, 29, um, you know, a solid 10 years, um, climbing was was my life. Um, yeah, I, I you know, I, I really. Um, something I'm grateful for is I I really got to to live all my climbing dreams.
2: What for you when you were climbing? What drew you to it? Why did you want to dedicate so much of your life to it?
1: I'm not really sure. I think um, you know it's a lot of things. I I love being outside. Most of my climbing that I did was in the Utah desert, and I remember the first time. I went to the Utah desert and seeing that, that red sandstone and, and the you know the junipers and the pinions and <clears throat> the ephedra and the sagebrush and the cactus, it, I'd never it was you know almost this religious experience. I'd never been somewhere like that. And yeah it, it really immediately I knew, wow, this is the place that I, I need to spend some time here. I um I quickly started climbing more and definitely had a uh, sort of a natural talent for it, and so that also um, made it really appealing. Oh wow! For once in my life, I'm good at something. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Really, is that how is that how it felt? Were there a lot of things growing up that you didn't feel like came naturally?
1: Um, I, I was always a really bad student, and so there was kind of this uh this uh um this this need to sort of prove myself like you know i'm i'm not worthless i want to show i want to show the world what i can do
2: what was the specialty that you really developed as a rock climber what did you become really good at my things
1: crack climbing which is uh exactly what it sounds certain types of rock granite sandstone mostly um will form these perfect cracks in them that um will go from the ground and and soar up hundreds of feet sometimes thousands of feet and when you're crack climbing you're just using your hands or your fingers or your fists or even your whole body some sometime to wedge into the crack depending on how big it is and you use that for uh to hold yourself onto the wall,
2: would you wear the same kind of ropes and safety harnesses when you're crack crack climbing
1: yeah i mean i've i've uh I've done plenty of free soloing as well, but that that' that's a you know a rare um treat It was a treat it. free soloing,
2: yeah, yeah, no, I know, but for you it felt like a treat,
1: yeah. I mean, it just takes everything to the next level, obviously, because the the stakes are extremely high. And you only do it on on terrain that you're extremely comfortable on.
2: And for you, when you would choose to free solo, when you were like, this is, I'm going to have this special treat. Like, was it because, like, when would you notice that you wanted to push yourself to do that and take it up? Like, what was the motivation?
1: To be honest, sometimes it just comes out of a place of boredom and having nothing better to do I, I can think of plenty of times I was hanger, hanging around Yosemite Valley, knowing to climb with that afternoon, I think, oh gosh, I should go I should go run a lap up Saljanella. that would be
2: nice. <laughs> I'm struck that you said when you were bored, you would do it like you would kind of ratchet up the risk and do this thing that's you know. Um like how do you think of that now? Like what boring what used to be boring to you?
1: Um yeah, you know, I I was so desperate to fill up every minute of my day with excitement and productivity and doing things. Uh, downtime just seemed like a waste of time. Um obviously I'm getting Getting a heavy dose of that right now. You know, actually, a kind of an interesting thing that I've noticed with this this illness is that it has, in a way, satisfied this craving that I had with climbing. Um, I always craved this experience of, you know, the ultimate climb where you had to fully commit. And, and relinquish all control I could just never quite take that next step To have a climb like that It seemed like too much for me And in a lot of ways This experience of being sick Has um, kind of satisfied that craving Because this is the ultimate experience Of commitment and not having control And the only way out is through.
2: Mason started feeling sick in the spring of 2018. He was about to turn 30 and was planning his wedding to Allie later that summer. He was on a trip to Yosemite with a climbing friend, and he started feeling off. He told me it came on suddenly, that it felt kind of like the flu, but without coughing or congestion. At first, Mason wasn't worried. He thought he'd get better once he got home, but then he didn't.
1: The first, the first few months of being sick was, you know, sort of still able to kind of limp along through life. Um, I wasn't. I recognized that I wasn't able to exercise. That exercise had pretty extreme um, consequences, which was, you know, terrifying to me. But I still had all my cognitive. Um, Function and I could socialize and you know go out to dinner and work on projects around the house. Um, and then right around my 30th birthday, um, my condition became much worse, um, and kind of more or less what it's been like since. It was this, this, uh, this several week period that was, um, it was awful, you know. I went from you know, sitting in my living room, all I can do is sit here and and watch a TV show to Oh my gosh, I can't I can't look at my computer screen anymore. It hurts my eyes too much. So then, you know, I was reading a book. And then all of a sudden I realized I cannot look at these pages anymore. I cannot read another word. My brain feels like it's about to explode and I had to put my book down. And and that was sort of this this moment that um that I kind of felt like I was leaving very much leaving life as I knew it behind and kind of um uh sailing off towards the unknown horizon.
2: It's really striking to me, you know, you have this moment that you can remember as a very clear before and after of when you sort of um, surrendered to what you, what your constraints were.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I surrendered exactly at that moment because I never felt more terrified and hopeless. Um, it was the first moment in my life where I really felt there was no safety net underneath me. I grew up in, you know, a, uh, a nice suburb of, of, uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I grew up with, um, you know, never, was never scared of not having enough, never afraid that I wasn't going to be able to receive good, uh, Medical treatment, if I ever needed it. All of a sudden, here I was in a situation where there was nobody could help me. There wasn't anybody I could turn to and say, "I'm out of options. I need help here."
2: How do you remember your wedding?
1: Um, It was actually right just about three or four weeks before things started getting really bad, and it was this really melancholy time for me because I knew I was really sick and it sort of prevented me from really kind of being myself at the wedding and um, it we had an amazing wedding you know we were Allie and I were there with all our best friends and family on a beautiful summer day in Utah and the the way I describe it is I I sort of felt like I was getting to attend my funeral. Like there were all the people that I love most in the world. And I was, you know, felt myself sort of slowly turning into this ghost.
2: Did you discuss it all when you first got sick, whether delaying the wedding or, or delaying getting married or not getting married? No,
1: yeah, we, because we just assumed I was going to get better, and I wasn't that sick. I was well enough that I knew I I'd be able to pull it off. But it, you know, I crossed the the finish line on that in a <clears throat> flaming, burning wreckage.
2: You mean flaming, burning wreckage? Like your your body was just wrecked <laughs> after? Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. my body was wrecked after.
2: strikes me like as you've talked about sort of the, the realization and the ways your your illness kind of came on suddenly and then the depths of your illness kind of hit you I'm, I'm it sounds the way you're telling me I'm picturing you kind of alone, like alone putting down the book, alone um, the sort of going internal as you yeah. are absorbing this um what was it like in your marriage as you were realizing how this illness was going to change your life?
1: Um you know in a lot of ways it's it's brought us closer because we've sort of had to endure this awful thing together. But it's still awful and it's obviously different for ally because she's still healthy and able bo- able bodied but it's it's been horrible for her she lost her partner and now she has to take care of somebody and i can't always be there for her um obviously not physically but more so emotionally like if i'm if i'm too crashed out and And can't really talk, you know, it's only a very small little tiny piece of her, of her former partner that she has now.
2: A different partner. Yeah. When you say she, she takes care of you, what, what does she help you do?
1: Um, you know, she, she cooks, she cooks dinner, she... Drives me to <clears throat> I'm just going to have a sip of my
2: tea. Sure, sure.
1: <clears throat> hey, hi.
2: What kind of tea do you drink?
1: Oh, tea is like my, one of my big things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't drink the same tea, you know, twice, twice in a week. It's always something different. Ginger, peppermint, poor, turmeric. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm able-bodied enough that I can get up and, and go to the bathroom and, you know, even, Put something in the microwave and that sort of thing, but yeah, helping around the house, um, doing the laundry you know, she has to do all of that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I'm probably forgetting a million things too, <laughs> that I <are> just <laughs> go completely over my head at this point. But and meanwhile, she's in grad school getting her PhD, so it's not like she already doesn't have a lot on her plate.
2: Do you find, like, have you, is there a certain time of day when you all spend time together, or does it vary? Like, does she come in and lay down beside you when you talk, or how how do you stay connected these days? Um,
1: Lately, we've been, every night at dinner, we sit at our table and we watch an episode of Jeopardy. (laughs) And it's, like, been the most fun that I've had in years. (laughs) Oh, and it turns out we're actually both pretty good. We both know a bunch of random worthless information and that makes it really fun. Sometimes we'll go on a, a, like a, a little evening drive around the neighborhood. Um, she'll just drive me around when, when it's dark and, and my eyes can relax and we'll just drive around for 15 minutes and look at the trees and, and the houses and, lights trees get me really excited these days i'm all about trees and nevada's nevada's biggest tree is this giant sequoia that's just down the street from us in this person's yard so we so we go down to this massive tree and we get out of the car and go up feel the bark and look at its massive limbs and yeah that's something (laughs) <laughs> it's not It's not climbing El Cap Or uh, You know Allie and I flying our paragliders side by side Way up in the mountains But it's it's something
2: Well I'm going to let you get back to your day um, What are you going to do next? In life? No like today Like after we yeah. hang out What will happen?
1: <laughs> oh I I um... <laughs> I have a urology appointment. I'm gonna go get cathetered. Oh <laughs> is that too is that TMI for this uh no this i I podcast? like it
2: I mean does that happen often? How often do you get a catheter?
1: No this is this is not this is not part of my usual um uh programming um, I'm yeah programming. Having, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, having some lower body issues that may or may not be associated with my illness or not really sure and trying to figure that out i mean a lot of my time is spent on you know research and sort of medical investigation is where a lot of my cognitive capacity goes towards because i can't i can't keep living like this i can't do it my wife can't do it it's awful for her you know both our lives have been shut down and so we're doing everything we can to to try to figure it out against the odds.
2: Well, I hope today's appointment is. It feels like it's a useful one for you.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's certainly not going to be fun. But... <laughs>
2: <laughs> I called up Mason the next day, and I asked him how his doctor's appointment went.
1: The yeah doc. Doc recognizes, he's like, yeah, you're having problems. I'm like, uh, that's, yes, I, I know. <laughs> Thanks for uh, confirming that.
2: <laughs> um, well, let's pick up where we left off yesterday, if that, that sounds good to you. And we'll yeah. just do the same thing, just kind of go until you start to notice that you're ready to finish.
1: Yeah, no um,
2: Are you in the same place where I talked to you yesterday?
1: I sure am. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny. I was literally just thinking, you know, I've been on podcasts before for climbing and whatnot, and I never thought I'd be taping a podcast while laying in bed.
2: <laughs> no, it's very intimate, right? <laughs>
1: that's, uh, I guess, that's just how life goes.
2: Um, I want to before we move on from from um, your time, sort of being an elite rock climber, which we talked about some of your sort of the way you looked back on it with. Um, seeing it differently than it felt at the time about the risks you were taking um before you got sick did you think of yourself as someone who was a risk taker who enjoyed pushing the limits and and the thrill of danger
1: absolutely yeah um a, a lot of climbers uh, really dislike being labeled as adrenaline junkies but i i for sure was an adrenaline junkie um, you know i loved uh i loved doing big rope swings jumping off of cliffs um, i flew paragliders and speed wings you know soaring down a mountainside at 40 50 miles an hour
2: and did you push out the possibility of death when you were doing that or were you at peace with it when you think of your mindset back then
1: i uh, back then i would have told myself oh i'm at peace with it but I was just completely oblivious to it because when life is just sort of go is going your way at every single turn when there's no big bumps in the road, you start to think, Oh gosh, you know, this is, this is pretty great. I'm in control here. I'm, I'm in charge of, of what happens and, uh, that's just not the case. You know, and I I do have this complicated relationship with climbing at this point. Several of my very best friends have died climbing in recent years. And so it it isn't what it used to be for me. It's not as it's not this kind of innocent fun thing that we were all doing. You know, when I was 20 I would have thought, you know, like, oh yeah, climbing is worth dying for. But after after losing my friends and and being with their families and seeing seeing how hard it is, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is <clears throat> that was not worth it. There's so much so much more to life and it's a bigger wager than I thought to go out climbing. And not coming home at the end of the day is is not acceptable. I don't know. I think I'm a little cynical too, from sitting on the sidelines <laughs> as well, but <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah when you say several like how many when you think of your very close friends who you've lost how many um, uh
1: one two, three, four five five close friends.
2: I'm really sorry.
1: Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, these things have risk, it turns out. I'm really sounding like a curmudgeon, aren't I? No, I think you're <laughs> sounding
2: like someone who's gone through something very intense that has changed your perspective. Um, and also on what you want to what is precious and what is worthy of protection?
1: I will say that I think maybe the biggest lesson that being sick has uh, given me is that uh, it's just how precious life is. Life is so, so precious. And you know I, I feel like I, I have that perspective because I've really lost most of what life was for me. You don't have to go from being a professional rock climber to this level of function to have, to have lost everything. Even someone who wasn't athletic at all and you know maybe just had a, had a normal job and, and, and did everyday things, going from that to what life can be like with ME-CFS is, is just as massive a loss because, you know, I, I can't go for a walk around the neighborhood with my wife. I can't hang out with friends more than, you know, maybe one night in a month. You know, I don't want to sound like, oh gosh, I was a, I was a, hotshot climber and I can't do that anymore so for me it's really bad and you know that's that's not the I, way it is at all I know
2: you don't sound like that and also I just want to give you permission to be as curmudgeonly as you feel like it as you feel yeah. like it. yeah
1: <laughs> I sort of air on the curmudgeon, curmudgeonly side these days
2: Coming up, one more phone call with Mason from bed.
1: I've definitely accepted the fact a long time ago that I am now a disabled person. I have a disability. I am not able, able-bodied. But at the same time, it's, um, it's not acceptable. It's okay that I'm not okay. <laughs> But we're going to keep working to to make me okay again.
2: At the top
0: of the episode, we spoke about 303 Aerospace Protectant, which defends your most prized possessions from natural forces like sun, wind and kids who won't stop messing around with the crab bait. Did you just spill squid all over the back of the boat? Yeah. 303 keeps all kinds of surfaces looking new. Plastic, fiberglass, metal, carbon fiber, rubber, vinyl, and leather. Which means it's the one treatment you need to safeguard the vehicles you love to use on your outdoor adventures. Simply spray it on and wipe dry. Unlike many products that leave greasy residues, 303 Aerospace Protectant dries to a clear matte finish. The water-based formula is safe on all types of surfaces. And best of all, a single application restores lost color and luster, and lasts for months. So you can spend your time the way you want to getting out there.
2: I got to call old money.
0: <laughs> well, who's going to clean it? You. No. <laughs> nice try. Outside podcast listeners get 20% off all 303 products for a limited time. Go to 303products.com and use the promo code OUTSIDE2021. That's 303products.com and promo code OUTSIDE2021.
2: During my second conversation with Mason Earl, he told me that these days his community is largely online. Mason can tolerate short spurts of screen time during the day, and through social media, he's been able to connect with other people living with chronic illnesses. He told me his friendships from his life before he got sick, especially with other climbers, have changed.
1: You know, I, I get together with friends now, my climbing friends, and I love them and I love being with them. But my life is, is just so, so different than theirs right now that, you know, I can't, I, can't, I can't get into and interested in all the old things that I used to talk about. I can't to a certain degree, but, you know, my illness in my life right now is, it's all I want to talk about because, you know, it, it dictates every moment of my life with chronic illness friends you know they've all had some similar type of experience and and that can be the foundation of of our friendship and i have i have friends that have had me since they were you know 9 years old and they're in their 40s now i have friends that that were so severe that they literally didn't use their legs for three years, you know, stories that that make me feel like I've kind of been on the on the the light duty pleasure cruise version of MECFS. Uh, yeah, all sorts of different experiences.
2: When you think about how you got through that period of that first sort of the heaviness and and the darkness of facing how your life was was changed um do you remember what helped helped you sort of move through the intensity of that that realization
1: it wasn't a graceful few weeks i mean i was kicking and screaming and literally crying with any using any extra energy i had mm-hmm. um yeah i guess probably crying was was my 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 uh, best survival mechanism and yeah. still is
2: yeah is it hard to cry does it exhaust you
1: uh e- yes yeah it is exhausting um but it is therapeutic it's the the release valve when You just can't take anymore.
2: Uh, This is also a hard question, so if you don't want to answer it, that's okay. Um, Have you had thoughts of suicide?
1: Yeah, I have, yeah. Um, I'd been sick for a year. It was spring of 2019, and I was sort of getting a little better, and I was thinking, oh, I might be, maybe I'm getting better. And then all of a sudden in April of 2019, things got much worse and all of a sudden I was more severe than I had been yet. It came down on me so hard. And this realization that this really is, this really might be my life now. And yeah, there was sort of, I remember just this few days that I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't know if I could, if i could take it for another second it just didn't seem possible that things were going to get better and and when you have no hope just just existing is, is 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 agony i don't know how close i was to actually taking any action but that was you know, by far the closest I've ever been to not wanting to live anymore. Which, before I was sick, Healthy Mason never could have guessed that that things would be like this. Healthy Mason, who always had everything go his way and had a had an even keel.
2: Do you talk about Healthy Mason a lot? Is that a term you use?
1: Yeah. My life is is so clearly divided in these two chapters: healthy Mason and sick Mason.
2: Have you um, has mental health care been a part of your health care? You oh yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah,
1: yeah. I, I'm I still see a therapist almost every week.
2: You know, Mason, I don't have a sense about your your health insurance and your medical bills. How are you? taking care of your medical life
1: um well thankfully i'm married to someone that works at a university (laughs) so yeah i definitely had a i've had a safety net there the whole time um but i mean to be honest most of this journey you know there hasn't really been much that you know the western medicine hasn't had a whole lot to offer um so actually, you know, the, the healers and um, th- those types of people that I've been seeing, which, you know, um, provide a lot of comfort from, at, at points, um, you know, none of that is covered by insurance. So it's, uh, yeah, whatever savings I had have uh, been pretty much obliterated by this whole experience.
2: It's helpful and not covered by your health insurance. Yeah. Yeah, that's just
1: how it goes. <clears throat> like, well, you'll you'll prescribe me Xanax, but I can't, you know, go see acupuncture lady who makes me feel all warm and fuzzy.
2: <laughs> Mason, thanks for talking to me again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I used to love talking so much, and now it's, it's a, it's a special treat. <clears throat> uh,
2: like a free solo. Yeah. Mason and I talked one more time about a month later. And he told me that he'd been feeling a bit better. He had spinal surgery last year that, for him, seems to be helping with some of his symptoms. Mason told me he'd even recently felt well enough to travel with Allie. Allie is also a rock climber, so they drove out to the desert, and Mason was able to watch her climb for the first time since 2018.
1: I was definitely sort of very, um, very much like a house cat, first time leaving the house, very unsure of the world and scared <laughs> of everything. <laughs> wow.
2: <laughs> I can picture a house cat in the desert being, like, totally freaked out. <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> what?
1: This isn't the living room.
2: And did you feel um, jealous watching your wife climb?
1: Uh, no, no, I don't. Um, I think to miss climbing, I would have to be health. To really miss climbing, I would have to be a lot healthier. Because right now, um, yeah, it's nice to go out and I can sort of sit and be outside for a few hours. Um, but what I miss is feeling good. I mean, when I like think of my healthy, my healthy daydreams, like what healthy life looks like, it's like me and my wife and our house in a little vegetable garden that I'm tending to, um, drinking a bubbly water on the back porch with some friends. I mean, that's, I think back on healthy life and actually those things were the best things I ever got to do. <laughs> you know, wasn't um, some godforsaken cliff and some godforsaken part of the world. Um, yeah, I was these smaller moments. You know, pruning a plum tree in my backyard—that's um, as good as it gets. Let me tell you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe having a kid or something. I don't know. That's certainly (laughs) off the table at the moment.
2: Pruning a plum tree, maybe having a kid. (laughs) Yeah. I hear it's, yeah, it's, you know,
1: (laughs) yeah, that's sort of, uh, thinking about that makes me feel sad that, you know, any sort of dream of starting a family is completely um, out of reach at the moment maybe we've we've already talked about this, I forget, but
2: no, you can tell yeah. me more about that. I mean, does it feel like it's on like a like an idea that you've just had to put on pause?
1: Yeah, it's definitely just on pause. It is a little yeah, definitely uh makes me sad to think that um <clears throat> that at least at the time being <clears throat> isn't um in the cards.
2: Something we haven't talked about, um, and it might be too private, you just tell me, but um, what have you noticed about when and whether it feels good to be touched by someone else? Um,
1: <clears throat> um, you know, at the moment, it's quite, It's um, it feels good and it's nice and, you know, hugging my wife is, uh, you know, something that I'll do at least once a day. Um, but, you know, I think back to when I was my most severe, um, touch is actually, it's, it's, uh, a lot of times can be too much sensory input. Um, and can result in overstimulation pretty quickly. And that's a really, I mean, it's just, that's horrific. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, right now, um, you know, my sensory sensitivities are much better.
2: When it it was so, um, during that horrific period, as you describe it, did you still... Was it this, did you long for touch and also feel revolted by it both? Um,
1: yeah, I wouldn't use the word revolted by it. It's more like, um, you know, I'll be laying there and, you know, my wife would put her arm on my shoulder and, and just her putting her, her hand on my shoulder would sort of send me into a brief period of shock almost like, whoa, whoa, um, it's just
2: insane um for you did it feel important to figure out how to continue to have a to have sexual intimacy like was that something that was a a priority even if it was changed to 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 not have it go away completely
1: yeah um it's something that that i've been willing to um to to sacrifice my um you know small amounts of health for it's it's worth it to maintain a, you know that deeper connection um but not everybody with MECFS cfs is as lucky as i am you know there's people that are so severe that that's just completely off the table
2: You look at your body in a full-length mirror.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I look like a ghost. Um, it is sort of interesting to look at myself in the mirror and um, just kind of be in awe of um, how different my life is and everything I've lost and everything I've learned. And I think of this. Um, you know, these years of illness of kind of being a transformative experience, you know, sort of like a rebirth, um, or, you know, like a shamanic death, <laughs> hmm. um, kind of in that vein. Um, and, you know, it's 99% of the time it's, it's been really horrific and, and awful and feels like a prison um, and there's been a lot of suffering, but you know through all that I sort of see life through fresh eyes, I guess yeah I'm finding I have an enormous capacity to enjoy life. <laughs> I don't need much.
2: Oh, I love that at this point yeah. you're discovering your capacity for joy that's really that's really cool um can you give me an example of something you noticed of like wow. This feels amazing.
1: Uh, we were we were out in the desert um, a few weeks ago, and I got out of the car and you know, kind of legs barely working, but um, just pacing around the parking lot a little bit. And there was a um, this little black beetle on the ground, and I I was just like, wow, look at that it's a beetle and I put my hand down and it crawled up on my hand and I just sort of let it do sort of like a, you know, the beetle treadmill around my hand Mm -hmm. (laughs) for a while. These are all things that I, I didn't really notice so much um, in life. Like being out in the desert, the only thing I would notice are, Oh, where are the rocks? You know, where are the good rocks? I want to find some, some rocks. (laughs) And now I'm looking at everything else.
2: I mean, hearing you describe this like uh, sense of wonder, it, it reminds me of like walking back from the playground with my two year old. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, yes, yes. she can't walk three feet without stopping and staring close up at something you know and i just like come on let's go home i gotta make dinner but she's like look at the hands you know yeah. look at this blossom you know it's just <laughs> uh-huh
1: you know not to brag but i'm kind of on that level right now
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was mason earl speaking with Anna Sale for a recent episode of Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC Studios in New York. The episode was produced by Afi Yellowduke. The rest of the Death, Sex, and Money team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Boteen, Yasmin Khan, and Andrew Dunn. Original music for this episode by Cam Tompkins. Special thanks to Sarah Letterman and to Marty Harding, an incoming summer intern at WNYC who pitched this episode and introduced the team to Mason? You can listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get your podcasts. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Anna is on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks. That's P-I-C-S. This episode was brought to you by Three Hundred Three Protectants and Cleaners designed to take care of the boats, trucks, RVs, and SUVs that you depend on for your adventures. Outside podcast listeners get 20% off all 303 products for a limited time. Go to 303products.com and use the promo code OUTSIDE2021. That's 303products.com and promo code OUTSIDE2021.